Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. And on the first day of the week at early dawn, the women came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. And they were perplexed by this, Luke tells us. Perplexed, and then they were terrified as they're met by two men in dazzling clothes. And then comes that great Easter statement. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Don't you remember what he told you about his impending death? These figures asked the women. Don't you remember what he said about the third day? And then they remembered his words, Luke tells us. They remembered, and for the first time, the force of Jesus' words began to really dawn on them. They had thought Jesus' language about his dying and rising again to be a dark metaphor, says N.T. Wright, indicating perhaps a great struggle against paganism or Israel's current leaders followed by a great victory. They'd not reckoned with it being literal or with the battle being waged against the last enemy, death itself. They were going to have to get used to living in a present which was shot through with God's future. If Jesus is not in the tomb, and if all of life is now shot through with God's future, they'd better hurry back and tell the others. This changes everything, more than they can begin to imagine, in fact, And it will later be St. Paul's task to articulate the fullness of the meaning of Christ's resurrection, the change that it actually wrought in the whole of the world. Now, sometimes Paul's prose can be dense and almost technical, his reasoning tight, yet a bit hard to follow from our distance of 2,000 years. But sometimes Paul positively rhapsodizes, all but laughing and singing his bold proclamation, as in this portion from his first letter to the Corinthians that we heard read aloud tonight. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul writes, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Now, Paul's image of the first fruits may not be obvious to us in our context. In the Hebrew scriptures, the first fruits of any crop are to be offered to God in a ritual acknowledgement of God's ownership of the earth, an earth on which humans are tenants, and stewards. And so the first fruits are offered to acknowledge that, to describe the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of those who have died, is to say that it's a glimpse. His resurrection is a glimpse of how things truly are or shall be between God the Creator and created humanity. What Paul is getting at is the idea that the death and resurrection of Jesus kicked open the door to the life which God has intended for us from the beginning. 
that what happened to Jesus at that particular time and place within history is what is promised for us in the culmination of all of time and history. Look at Jesus' resurrection and it says something about our promised future, in other words. Now, it was the belief of mainstream Judaism of the day, as represented by the Pharisaic movement of which Paul was very much a part, that at the end of history, the true Israel would be established through a general resurrection of God's elect covenant people, that although over the centuries righteous Israelites have died, in the end they shall be raised and Israel will be fully vindicated. That's what they understood resurrection to mean, something for the righteous Israelites in the end. The scandalous notion that Paul offers is that this is what has already happened to Jesus. And that in his resurrection, we have seen our future. In his resurrection, Jesus is neither a resuscitated corpse, nor a purely spiritual or ghostly being. He was body and soul, flesh and blood, mind and heart, alive, so fully and vibrantly alive, that not only would he not age and go on to die, as was the case with Lazarus. He's so alive that the world as we indwell it could hardly keep him for the 40 days in which he walked the earth after his resurrection. So he's with them and then he's not. He's recognizably the wounded Jesus and then at other times they, they don't see that. He cooks fish for them on the beach and he eats with them and he engages dialogue. He's very much alive, but, or and. C.S. Lewis talked about this world and this life as being the shadowlands. And it wasn't to denigrate this created order or the lives we live, the relationships we have, even the sorrows we endure. He wasn't saying that, but he was saying in the fullness of time, when we look back on this, it will seem but a shadow of the real. That's Paul. And so when Paul writes, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, that's what he has in view. Though people will still die, and Paul has not only seen Christians die, but in his earlier life he was only too happy to help engineer the deaths of Christians, Paul is utterly convinced that death's claim is not final, that death's defeat is in fact a foregone conclusion. It's a radical claim that Paul is making. You see what happened to Jesus, he says? That's the promise for us, because that door has been effectively kicked open forever. It's this hope that enabled Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the day before his execution as he was being led away by two of the guards in the prison, to look back and say to a fellow prisoner, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. Now, quite clearly, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women, as Luke lists them, did not have all of this in view as they hurried back to tell the others that Jesus was risen. 
What they did know was that what they had experienced at Golgotha a few days earlier was not the end that they had assumed it to be. And the response of the others to the story they bring, this great good news that they come with is exuberance, these words seemed to them to be an idle tale. And they did not believe them. An idle tale. You can almost see the disciples rolling their eyes and shaking their heads and muttering under their breath, Women. It's not unimportant, though, that it is the women who discover the resurrection, nor that it was the women who were prepared to stand and to bear witness to the crucifixion while most of the men were in hiding. Their willingness to see things through to the bitter end speaks clearly to their strength of character and to how much Jesus had meant to them. But the other reality is that they could afford to be there openly, both at the cross and then at the tomb, because in the eyes of both the Roman and the Jewish authorities, they were just women. Not a threat, not in the way that the male followers potentially could have been, just women. Therefore, of no real consequence, all but invisible, really, in the eyes of their culture. But from the beginning to its end, the gospel raises up people of no consequence, and it celebrates them as being people of worth and consequence as being mustard seed people, as being like the yeast that will leaven the dough. From beginning to end, the Gospels claim that what looks like power is no power at all, and that what looks inconsequential, what looks even like defeat, that's where the real action is happening. That's at the heart of the Gospel. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, The sociologist Rodney Stark argues that the reason the Christian movement grew so quickly from its beginnings in this battered little group of broken-hearted disciples to being the dominant faith of the whole of the Roman Empire within 300 years, the reason it had that kind of growth was because for those opening centuries of its life, the church knew really knew what it looked like to raise up people of no consequence. Among other things, that ancient church ignored distinctions of class and gender, treating slaves and women as full members of the body of Christ. You could no longer say, just women. They're no longer invisible. Or just slaves. They're people. The early church rescued infant girls who'd been abandoned, exposed out in the elements, left to die, having been deemed undesirable by the dominant culture because they were girls. The Christians claimed them and raised them as their own. They took care of the dying. And when the epidemics hit, they did not flee the cities the way that the wealthy Romans did but instead dug in. They nursed the sick and dying. They nursed their sick and dying pagan neighbors. 
at considerable risk to their own life and health, of course, to be in a plague-ridden city. But that's what they did because you raise up those who are the last and the lost and the least and the little. They insisted, in other words, on recognizing the full human worth of all people, regardless of what consequence they might have politically, economically, or culturally. The church hasn't always remembered that. It hasn't always remembered our mustard seed beginnings. There are long chapters in church history in which it seems we've been much more interested in mimicking the Roman Empire than in subverting it. Maybe the deepest Easter claim placed upon us, us in our time, is to learn again to pay attention to that which the empires of our day write off as inconsequential, disposable, at best, troubling statistics. Maybe with Peter, it's time to heed the voices of those who are ignored or dismissed as telling idle tales, to get up, to run to the tomb, to see the discarded burial clothes, and to get on with being amazed at what this resurrection story calls us to do and to be. And maybe with Mary Magdalene and the other women, it is time to remember his words and to hear in the resurrection story not simply a promise that secures our lives, our personal salvation, but a calling to be a death-resurrection people, a calling to be yeast and mustard seed in a world that is desperately in need of it, of hope and imagination and the raising up of disposable or forgotten people. Maybe this year that's what this resurrection story calls us to do and to be. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.